Imagine if you had a rule book for how to classify people. That as soon as you met someone, you could pull out this rule book and determine who they are, all boiled down to a few checkboxes or a bolded list. When you fill out a job application, or an application for an educational institution, do you feel that it's fair to classify your identity into standardized entry fields? Or does that not capture the totality of your life, your feelings, your experience? Now imagine that these checkboxes aren't determining whether you identify as male, female, or other, or your ethnicity, but rather your mental state and capacity to function in society. Imagine that these checkboxes determine whether you are considered fit for a certain position, or even whether or not you are a danger to yourself and others. This, my friends, is how clinicians in the field of healthcare determine how to get you, me, us, help. So, what's the rule book that decides how they play this game? It's a nifty, not-so-little book by the name of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM. Does it sound ominous and complicated enough yet? Not to worry. We're going to break it down for you to help understand. Here's your quick and dirty intro to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, or the DSM, the holy grail of clinical psychological diagnoses. The DSM is in its current fifth version, with various revisions and changes occurring at each iteration. It exists as a guide used by mental health professionals to make diagnoses, essentially to tell people what is or isn't wrong with them. Its purpose is to standardize the way we define disorder, the severity of it, and what symptoms are a product. Take OCD, or Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, which is often thrown around our everyday language as meaning super organized and neat. According to the DSM, a mental health professional looking to diagnose someone who might have OCD would look for the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. The DSM then goes on to meticulously define what constitutes an obsession, what constitutes a compulsion, how much time the symptoms may take up in someone's day, clarification of other reasons for these symptoms that would not be attributable to OCD, such as ritualized eating behaviors, hair pulling, etc. that better explain other psychological disorders, and even specifies for the severity of the disorder and the level of insight the client has into their own disorder. Since professionals tend to love checklists and tests, there are a variety of other psychological tests that professionals use to help make diagnoses. These range from personality tests, such as the Rorschach, you may be familiar with this test where a clinician shows the patient ambiguous pictures of ink stains and asks them what they see, neuropsychological tests that look into attention, perception, learning, memory, and judgment of the patient, and tests of suicidal tendencies and symptoms. This doesn't even come close to covering the seemingly infinite combinations of tests and assessments that may be administered by mental health professionals before arriving at a diagnosis or combination of diagnoses for a patient, but it gives an idea of the objective and standardized methods that exist for deciding on a diagnosis. Of course, all these tests and the DSM aren't the end-all be-all of the diagnosing process. Mental health professionals have to rely on a level of clinical intuition and previous experience from their work in the field as a factor. The issue arises from the impossibility of defining or classifying this intuition. When the decision you're making is about a diagnosis that is going to significantly affect someone's identity, perception, and the way they live their lives, 
Is a gut feeling or undefinable sixth sense really going to cut it? According to Science and Pseudoscience in Clinical Psychology, despite well-replicated evidence that statistical formulas are superior to clinical judgment, most clinicians continue to rely on clinical judgment, even in cases where it's not recommended. So, when we already know that there is significant ambiguity in gray area when it comes to talking about adults, what about kids? When it comes to tiny humans that are constantly changing and growing and developing and becoming someone new, the waters grow even more murky and hard to see through. When working with pediatric cases, the DSM-5 is still the go-to guide for professionals. The American Psychiatric Association itself claims that the DSM-5 focuses on a lifespan approach to mental health, which means it arranges each diagnostic chapter chronologically to reflect which disorders are more applicable to youth and adolescents earlier in the chapter, and those more applicable to adulthood later in the chapter. Yet there is a significant movement that calls out the overdiagnosis and overmedication of children and adolescents by the mental health industry. Those who advocate for this viewpoint point out the idea that we have become quick to pathologize the range of personality and behavior that children exhibit, and to diagnose and overmedicate children that would have simply been considered difficult or unruly in previous generations. It is widely acknowledged that it is extremely difficult to diagnose disorders such as bipolar disorder and ADHD in many youths that skirt the borders of diagnostic criteria, especially when they are still learning about themselves and developing their identities. While in many cases these diagnoses are valid, and continue to be valid into adulthood, in other cases children are misdiagnosed and face confusion surrounding their identities. According to a study in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Mental Health, overdiagnosis or misdiagnosis are often products of clinicians and not strictly adhering to criteria and having their diagnosis affected by heuristics or biases. When considering overdiagnoses or misdiagnosis, it begs the question, can you give someone a disorder via a diagnosis? Although the question may sound initially absurd, it's worth unpacking. Diagnoses, though they may seem just like check marks and notes on a paper, are made up of words. Words have weight. When you tell someone that they are something, or that they have something, consciously or not, you're changing the way they see themselves and the way they think other people see them too. As explained by Dr. Susan Heidler, when we receive a diagnosis, we tend to become hyper-aware of confirmatory evidence in our lives that confirm this diagnosis and tune out any non-confirmatory evidence that conflicts with this new label. Even more damaging, calling yourself a diagnostic label can make you more likely to act that way in the future, or to resign yourself to the idea that this diagnosis is a fundamental and unchangeable part of who you are. The power in names is sometimes even grander than we think, and although it may not be the norm, diagnoses have the very real power of amplifying and reinforcing behavior patterns and ways of thinking that can draw some individuals even closer toward harmful thoughts and practices that they may otherwise attempt to counteract. But we've been talking about disease and disorder for so long, do we ever really stop to think whether it's even worth it to diagnose someone with a disorder in the first place? I know, I know, it sounds like we may be going crazy, but hear us out. We, as a society, live on labels. Labels are how our brains, these masses of pink squishy matter, divide the chaos of the world into patterns that it can categorize and differentiate. Imagine only seeing the world through a colorful, swirling kaleidoscope all the time, and you may just give yourself a headache. 
In the realm of mental health, diagnoses are a similar form of order, an organization that, while necessary, may also have the potential to be harmful. As explained by psychologist Dr. Samantha Smithstein, the DSM is not a complete picture of human suffering, not even close. No matter how much longer it gets, and how many more trees are killed to print every page of its constantly growing material, the DSM will never capture the human experience and the ways people all over the world are living their lives every day. While diagnoses are an effective way to get people help and treatment, it's also worth considering that our society has room to expand our definitions of what's normal and open our minds to the infinite ways we end up being human. A few decades ago, homosexuality was a diagnosis in the exact same book as major depressive disorder and schizophrenia. And today, those who identify as homosexual live their lives where they are no longer identified as diseased or disturbed, but simply other shades of human. If mental health professionals had never looked critically at the way they defined and pathologized what we once called sexual orientation disturbance, we would still be living in an era where who you love was a reason to be given medication and treatment. And before you say that this could never work, and I'm naive and idealistic for even considering it, let me take you to this lovely little town in Belgium called Heel. In Heel, those with mental illnesses are placed with host families that welcome them into their homes with open arms and are never even told about their new house member's diagnosis. The way these families see their borders, because they are called borders and not patients, is that sometimes you have to stop trying to fix the problems and stop trying to cure the habits and accept people as they are. This tradition of community-centered care has been going on for decades, and the reason it works is because they let people just... be. The boarders are given whatever mental health care they need, but beyond that, they're given a space where they're accepted, even with their idiosyncrasies and pain, and are told that their existence is valid, even if they are never cured. I leave you with this thought. The thought that maybe falling apart and putting ourselves back together again isn't diseased, it's just human. Maybe mental illness is just human too. And maybe, sometimes, a diagnosis becomes something that makes someone feel just a little less human. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a brain disorder which has received a lot of attention in the psychology world. In this episode, we learn about what ADHD is and how prevalent it is in today's society. My name is Christopher, and this is The Secret Menu Project. Hey everyone, Christopher here. On this episode of The Secret Menu Project, we're going to talk about ADHD and what makes it so intriguing. We'll also learn about the history of ADHD, myths and misconceptions, and how ADHD affects people with the disorder. Now that we introduce what we're going to talk about, let's get started. So what exactly is ADHD? Well, ADHD is a brain disorder in both children and adults. Characteristic features of the disorder include excessive motor activity, inattention, and impulsivity. The causes of ADHD are unknown, and it occurs more in males than females. Also, people who are diagnosed with ADHD tend to be diagnosed with other disorders, and about 50% of children diagnosed with ADHD will retain symptoms through adulthood. This is just a brief disorder on what ADHD is before we go into detail about the disorder. The first example of a disorder similar to ADHD was one found by Sir Alexander Crichton in 1798. 
He described and emphasized that the intensity of healthy attention is different between individuals and how some people experience abnormal attention levels. While Crichton was the first one to derive symptoms associated with ADHD, he did not mention hyperactivity, a key symptom in the disorder. In 1844, German physician and author Henrik Hoffmann created Fidgety Phil, or Zaffel Philip, children's stories about a boy, Phil, which seems to be the closest example of ADHD at the time. In 1902, Sir George Frederick Still wrote the Goulstonian Lectures, which is considered the scientific starting point of the history of ADHD. And, in 1908, Tredgold found a correlation between early brain damage and behavior problems or learning difficulties, which were then confirmed by the encephalitis lethargica epidemic. Some children with this behavior disorder began to show symptoms of ADHD. As time went on, more discoveries were found which contributed to ADHD findings. This includes the 1932 report on hyperkinetic disease by Franz Kramer and Hans Polnau which met all three symptoms and two criterion for ADHD. Charles Bradley's 1937 report of positive effects of stimulant medication in children with behavior disorders, future research suggesting a possible causation between brain damage and symptom-like behavior, and the finding of hyperactivity as the diagnostic sign of brain damage. This all led to the syndrome minimum brain damage, which, after being criticized and tested a lot, became what is known as ADHD today. With all that information, we can now understand why ADHD is such a complicated disorder. Now, let's go over some common myths and misconceptions of ADHD. There are a ton of factors that influence treatment regarding ADHD and what is okay and what isn't. Parental attitudes and beliefs, problem severity, side effects, costs, and more all play a role in this. Misconceptions also play a role in treatment or medication. Actually, a study done by Scudio examines how some misconceptions and to what standard they are held directly or indirectly relate to intervention and treatment of ADHD. The most important thing to note is that inaccurate knowledge of ADHD can be a barrier for searching treatment. So how do people find out more about ADHD? Little is really known about it, but it could be a combination of healthcare professionals, teachers and faculty, the internet, social media sites, and more. When we conducted our random interview to further our understanding, we found that 25% of our interviewees learned about ADHD through school, 25% learned about people that have ADHD, 37.5% have learned from a healthcare provider, and 12.5% have learned about it from a credible website. Through these sources, people either may opt for dietary interventions, stimulant medications, or both. More people seem to be accepting of dietary interventions, such as cutting out sugar, than towards stimulant medications. But people who learned about ADHD mainly from healthcare professionals had a significantly higher acceptance towards stimulants than people who did not. Also, people who believed ADHD is overdiagnosed were less accepting of using medication. So what's the key takeaway? People who had higher levels of knowledge and lower levels of misconception are more likely to be accepting towards stimulant medications. Now, as previously mentioned, ADHD is usually diagnosed during childhood, and 50% of these children retain symptoms throughout adulthood. Another study performed by Martinelli, Mostovsky, and Roche measured whether changes in motor response control, specifically changes with increased cognitive load and motivational contingencies, affect decision-making in children through delay discounting with and without ADHD. Let's break down that sentence a little as it sounds super complicated at first. Response control is what allows people to refrain from impulses or natural reactions to events. Cognitive load is the effort being used in working memory on a task. Finally, delay discounting means that waiting for bigger and better rewards may not be worth it to those who prefer instant gratification. Delay discounting is definitely important because it is a common personality trait people with ADHD have. Now, back to the study. These researchers measured delay discounting using two tasks a discounting test using money as a reward and longer delays, and a second discounting test involving edible rewards at shorter delays. The results of this study ultimately showed that increasing cognitive load impacted girls, but not boys with ADHD compared to other children, 
Specifically, girls with ADHD had poorer response control when cognitive load was greater, but response control was impaired among boys with ADHD regardless of cognitive load. Boys with ADHD showed similar improvement in response control as typical children did, but girls with ADHD did not show these improvements. So what's that key takeaway? Individuals with ADHD display greater delay discounting and motivational contingencies and cognitive load impact response control differently in children with ADHD than typical children. Also, boys and girls differ in their degree of delay discounting and how far motivational contingencies and cognitive load really work. Now that we learned something about ADHD in children, let's shift our focus over to the adult population. ADHD is less common in adults than in children, or at least appears to be. This is why research on the adult population and ADHD is so important to share with you guys. So how has ADHD affected the lives of adults? Well, what we know is that while signs of hyperactivity and impulsivity have decreased throughout the lifespan, adults with ADHD still experience the same amount of inattention. What we do not know is the amount of people who have symptoms of ADHD but have not been diagnosed with the disorder. We also don't know how these ADHD-like symptoms have affected their lives. That is, until a study performed by Mikkelsen et al. This study involves older adults, those who are 65 or older, and how ADHD has affected them. More specifically, we're going to talk about older adults who have met the diagnostic criteria of ADHD, but didn't even know they had ADHD in the first place. So, these older adults were contacted and responded to in-depth interviews in their homes. What the researchers found out were seven key themes. Four of these were similar to symptoms of ADHD, being active, being impulsive, attention problems, and mental restlessness. The three other common themes presented in adults with ADHD symptoms included low self-esteem, overstepping boundaries, and feeling different or misunderstood. So what's the key takeaway? ADHD has the most negative impact on life during childhood and late life. ADHD overall gets better with age according to these respondents for two possible reasons. The first is that the respondents have learned to cope with symptoms throughout their lives, and the second is that neurobiological aging processes lead to diminished symptoms. To round out our show, let's talk about how ADHD affects another big things in our lives, money. Most research dominating this has stated that adults with ADHD have difficulty keeping full-time jobs. Recent evidence, specifically the paper from Anshell, have shown that adults with ADHD who are entrepreneurs tend to be more successful. Entrepreneurs with ADHD also state their ADHD symptoms might be more beneficial than a pairing. They have a heightened sense of creativity which allows them to build a better vision for the company that they are themselves trying to build. What we can also learn from Anshell's paper is that people with ADHD tend to work best in highly stimulating environments. This includes environments that produce stressful work that contains multitasking, a busy and fast-paced work environment, work that is physically demanding or hands-on, and tasks that are just interesting. Let's go over what we learned in this topic. We learned what ADHD is and what its main symptoms are, how ADHD came to be, common myths and misconceptions of the disorder, and acceptability to medications and how ADHD affects both children and adults. If you want to learn more, check out our social media pages for more details and information. Thanks for listening to this topic of The Secret Menu Project. I'm Christopher signing off. Welcome back. We will now be getting into the topic of psychotherapy, its function, what we know about it, and the many future directions that the field might be headed. I'm sure most of you, whether or not you've actually been to a therapist, have some preconceived notion or idea of psychotherapy and its effectiveness or its purpose. I ask that for the purpose of this podcast, you leave all of those preconceived notions behind, as we will take an objective look at psychotherapy, mental illness, and the many alternatives we have for treating these mental illnesses. Before we go ahead and dive into definitions, statistics, analysis, we first need an idea of what psychotherapy is here to do, and that's to treat mental illness, to essentially fix brains that humans have decided need fixing. 
So what exactly is a mental illness? What's going on in the brain and how does psychotherapy, or anything for that matter, aim to fix it? Trying to shove all mental illnesses under one umbrella or capture all the complexities and intricacies of the human brain is likely impossible. But a general understanding of how the brain works can give us a better idea of what is happening in mental illness. So our current model of the brain is as follows. Our brain is composed of billions of neurons, connecting and communicating with one another electrically and chemically. These electrical and chemical signals form our thoughts, our memories, and everything we know as human beings. Now as an analogy, if you imagine every neuron connecting to another neuron, through a highway system, you know, different roads, freeways, whatever you want to think of it as. But these roads are allowing for the communication, they're responsible for our thoughts and our memories. What we found is that each of these roads works the same way as a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. So if you practice Spanish all day, every day, eventually you're going to strengthen those neural connections, those highways, which are just electrical and chemical signals between neurons, and you'll probably speak Spanish with time. If you practice kicking a ball every day, you will eventually be able to kick a ball probably a lot better than average. That's the same concept. So what's happening in the brains of the mentally ill is that they've strengthened these bad pathways that are responsible for you know, depressive thinking, anxiety, traumatic memories, etc. These pathways are so strong that they dominate the brain. They're the highways most traveled and eventually it becomes a positive feedback loop. You use it more, so it becomes stronger. So you use it more, so it becomes stronger. So you use it more and it becomes stronger, and so on and so on. And that's our understanding of most mental illnesses. When you think of depression, it's just those negative thoughts which have been strengthened so much that they begin to eventually take control of the brain. So now we can move on to the methods we've devised to rewire these brains and to provide relief to the millions that are suffering. The two most common methods that we've employed so far are medications and psychotherapy. Some people will debate whether one is better than the other, more effective, but the reality is that they both have pros and cons. And oftentimes, the data has suggested that they're most effective when used together. For mild to moderate cases of depression and anxiety, psychotherapy has been shown to lead to fewer relapses as compared to medication use alone. For patients with severe depression or anxiety, most psychologists agree that the combination of medication and psychotherapy often leads to the best outcome for the patient. The reality is that every case is different and every patient may require different treatments or combinations of treatments. It's safe to say though that most severe cases will probably require medication, but my personal opinion is that medication should be a last resort. The reason being, if you have a mild or moderate mental disorder, you probably want to avoid the risk of side effects and addiction that usually come with these medications. Additionally, psychotherapy has been shown to provide longer lasting benefits as compared to medication. Now I briefly want to discuss the gray area that many of us find ourselves in. We all deal with stress, we all deal with pain, sadness, anger, or any number of difficulties this unpredictable world can throw at us. But this obviously doesn't mean we suffer from a mental illness. Mental illnesses are usually not black and white. And before self-diagnosing or seeking therapy or medication or even worse, self-medicating, 
There are other coping mechanisms we can and should experiment with. Many activities have been shown effective in rewiring and changing the chemical composition of our brain. The two healthiest and most notable are exercise and meditation. Aerobic exercise such as jogging, swimming, cycling, dancing, even just walking have been proven to reduce anxiety and depression. These improvements in mood are thought to be caused by induced blood circulation to the brain and a release of chemicals known as endorphins, which affect different mood modulating areas in the brain. Even if you absolutely can't muster the motivation to exercise, even just going out into the sun has been shown to influence serotonin levels in the brain and be very beneficial for mood. Now meditation is something that is probably very abstract for most people who haven't tried it, but scientists have reached a consensus with regards to the benefits of meditation on the brain. Using fMRI imaging, which measures blood flow to different regions of the brain, relate to activation of these regions, studies have shown that consistent meditation significantly increases activation in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the visual cortex, the superior frontal sulcus, and the intraparietal sulcus, while decreasing activation in the amygdala. So for the layperson, those parts of your brain influence monitoring, engaging, and orienting your attention, and essentially lead to a much more emotionally stable individual. So the idea is that increased levels of concentration are highly associated with a decrease in emotionally reactive behaviors, which are often implicated in mental illness, specifically mood disorders. So you meditate often, you increase attention capabilities, which allows for greater control over your emotions, which in turn gives you control over your mood. So now onto the final topic of this episode and probably my favorite one, which is the future direction of psychotherapy. Since the birth of the internet, society has been changing and evolving at a rate humanity has never seen before. With this increased rate of change that is occurring in society, it is important that we carefully consider the future and be ready to adapt to changing times and technological capability. So one thing I've come across is the use of VR technology in psychotherapy, particularly the use of virtual reality for exposure therapy, which is designed to expose patients to their fears to allow them to essentially overcome those fears. We'll soon be living in a world where we all have access to very captivating virtual reality and with it access to our wildest dreams. There's no saying what virtual reality will do to our brains, our reward systems, and our perception of reality. Even the accessibility of GPS on cell phones has changed our brain from the time we were cavemen, losing our innate ability to gain a sense of direction and a sense of our surroundings. With that in mind, we have to think about how virtual reality or other technologies might change our brains and our psychology. Another new therapy that could revolutionize our treatment of the brain has been DBS therapy, or deep brain stimulation, which I've actually had the honor of doing research on over the last year. DBS therapy is very invasive, but also very promising. The premise is that you implant an electrode subcortically, essentially deep into the brain of patients, and the electrode, when hooked to a battery, will release small pulses of electrical stimulation to the affected areas of the brain. DBS therapy has been described as analogous to a pacemaker, but for the brain. It has shown some promise in treating depression and a number of movement disorders from Parkinson's to epilepsy. As of now, there's no limit to the potential of deep brain stimulation and what it can do to the brain. It's just a matter of gathering more data 
in optimizing and modulating the therapy to find how to best apply it. That pretty much wraps up this episode of the podcast. So stay curious and stay tuned for what's to come. Where does happiness come from? And do we want it? The answers to these questions may seem obvious, but a couple of recent articles have shown that happiness may come from unexpected places, and may not always be what we think it is. If you want to understand the dark side of happiness, the concrete and conceptual sources of happiness, and about how a caveman's happiness can endanger his kin, look no further. An article from the scientific journal Perspectives on Psychological Science attributes good outcomes to happiness. In A Dark Side of Happiness, How, When, and Why Happiness is Not Always Good, by Gruber, Moss, and Tamir, research begins by highlighting how happiness facilitates the pursuit of important goals, contributes to vital social bonds, broadens people's scope of attention, and increases psychological health. The article continues to analyze the dangers of extreme degrees of happiness. A happiness they categorized as a high-intensity happiness drew many comparisons to mania. Mania is characterized by persistently elevated or increased degree of positive mood. In an unhealthy environment, this mania-like happiness overdrive can lead to risk-taking behaviors and neglect of threats. In these cases, Happiness may not motivate a positive work environment or better a relationship. Can you imagine being in a close relationship with someone who is always happy? Having a partner or friend who is constantly happy may not relate to people's needs for downtime in a time of crisis. Whenever major life events lead to sadness or even depression, being involved with someone who cannot empathize could lead to a ruined relationship. Additionally, If a tragic event befalls someone who feels excesses of happiness, they may not be able to process the events. The Gruber, Moss, and Tamir article discusses potential wrong times for happiness. They define emotions as responses to particular sets of circumstances and articulate that there may be appropriate times for positive emotions and negative emotions. Functional theories of emotion say that emotions are adaptive. They explain that positive emotions allow for building of resources. In the same vein, anger may prepare the individual to fight off an offender. Considering emotion from an evolutionary perspective, motivation stems from happiness and resting time stems from sadness or grieving. Traditionally, anger signals the others that the person perceives the environment as unfair and blames someone else for a hardship. Positive emotions signal that the person perceives the environment and people around them as safe and favorable. Because both of these stem from the environment around the people, they are very applicable to an evolutionary perspective. The environment around humans, modern day and ancestral, is ever-changing. Our emotions adapt to this environment as needed. For example, As hunter-gatherers, our ancestors needed a reinforcement for going out into the dangerous world and collecting food for their families and friends. Being able to give a meal to someone in need, even today, grants people a deep feeling of happiness. This strong, inherent, empathetic response of shared happiness could very well have given people the motivation to face potential predators. 
If we could feel this happiness and pride all the time, however, it would lose its value as a reinforcement. Similarly, happiness in a situation where people are in danger and in need of help is a very maladaptive response. When considering the value of this emotion from an applied behavior analysis perspective, feeling happiness in times of hardship could either make times of hardship desirable or devalue the times of true happiness when positive events are occurring in someone's life. Going back to the hunter-gatherer example, imagine that a caveman has a maladaptive emotional response, specifically an over-applied happiness response. This caveman's kin becomes involved in a tragic accident with a lion. The sun wandered out of their humble abode onto the Sahara and never came back again. What if the caveman felt only happiness after this incident? He only felt happiness for the opportunity to focus on the rest of his children. Here, happiness reinforces an event it should not be reinforcing. The caveman now fails to recognize his fault and take on the burden of guilt, resulting in less of his genes contributing to the next generation. The next time a child wanders out of his cave, he may even feel happiness as that action that had been met by happiness previously. Maladaptive emotions can lead to much greater consequences than simply lacking empathy. So, how do we get the right happiness at the right time? Many people are asking this same question and wanting to be happier than they already are. The difficulty with addressing this question comes with the individualized nature of happiness and where it derives. This is why we personally conducted our own random survey, where we interviewed 10 students about what happiness means to them and how happy they are exactly. One of the interviewees responded by defining it as, being financially stable, having a family, and constantly bettering myself for myself and others around me. Most of the responses consisted of having healthy, stress-free relationships with family and friends. And when asked how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, only 10% of the responses said they were slightly unhappy with their life as their definition of happiness. Concrete life goals and working towards them can provide a good start for those looking to be happier, but this also requires determination of standards evaluating achievement. Determining individual standards for goals takes incredible time dedicated to self-reflection and isolation from societal standards. Additionally, when evaluation comes into the picture, doing so can disappoint when these goals go unmet. This stunts people from reaching higher levels of happiness. Worst case scenario, the pursuit of happiness leads to maladaptive outcomes. When given the right tools and environment, however, pursuing happiness may not always be self-defeating. Successful paths always avoid direct pursuits of the abstract concept of happiness, like an American dream or fame or whatnot, and instead focuses on changes in emotion-regulatory habits or daily activities. There are, however, specific activities that have been studied in relation to their effect on happiness. This study of happiness assumed people can decide for themselves how happy they feel, the self-reported measures reflected four factors ranked by the survey takers. Circumstances, aspirations, comparison with others, and person's baseline happiness or dispositional outlook. An empirical study by Blanchflower and Oswald in 2004, entitled Money, Sex, and Happiness, from the National Bureau of Economic Research, studied the link between sexual behavior, income, and happiness. 
The paper found sexual activity to be a strong positive correlate with happiness. The difference in happiness between a single, married, divorced, widowed, or separated couples demonstrates this link. Marriage correlates most strongly with happiness, and also exhibits the highest level of sexual activity. Marriage also maintains a social bond that has been shown by researchers to facilitate happiness. People who have had sex outside their marriage report notably low levels of happiness. Another low-scoring group on the happiness scale are those who have paid for sex. This is why we surveyed 10 students about how much sex really impacts their happiness, and found that 90% were positively impacted by it, whereas 10% of interviewees were unaffected. As for this specific activity, a quick burst of happiness can come from intercourse for both females and males. Studies show that men enjoy sex slightly more than women. Interestingly, people with higher education experience greater effects on their happiness from sexual activity than those with low levels of education. Although intercourse typically equals happiness, the equation doesn't always include multiple partners. The happiness maximizing number of sexual partners in a year is calculated to be only one. This finding suggests that the simple activity of sexual intercourse may not be the provider, but instead the activity in relation to some sort of bond. Additionally, income had no statistically significant effect on happiness. The results of this study show some of the ways in which specific activities can lead us closer to a happy life. Do we want to live a life on cloud nine, though? We've learned how to become happy, but we've also learned it's important not to overdo it. The studies discussed during this journey opened our eyes to the delicate balance happiness plays in our lives. It's important to see happiness as a response, not a goal or an activity. Every emotion on the spectrum, from happiness to grief to anger, should be felt in moderation. Try to do things that make you smile, but don't be afraid to let that frown stay upside down. Reaching our full emotional depth can only come from involving ourselves in a full range of experiences and reflecting on how we feel.